You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Secret Rooms. Definitive Edition. Part 3. Past Days. Chapter 14. The Painted Wall. From the Journal of James Penrose. Weirwood. Nine years ago. West Virginia, in July of 1873, was once again swelteringly hot. At Weirwood, our mornings before the heat of the day set in were all about tilling the land, recovering the vegetables we grew, and extracting the milk and eggs from our livestock area. The number of animals had actually grown since I arrived, as scouting parties had searched local abandoned farms where goats and chickens had miraculously been undiscovered by the Wendigo. Nathan, the coach driver and groundskeeper, had been the one to posit this idea, having been a farmhand before coming to Weirwood, and I admired both his shrewd reasoning in this regard and his alleged skill at chasing down chickens. The secret, he said, was to walk about as though you weren't interested in them at all, and then when they didn't care about you, simply scoop one up, calm as can be. I had a brief spell of nightmares wherein I placed myself in the unenviable predicament of attempting to convey a live goat back from the wilderness to within the safety of our walls. Our afternoons, following a modest midday meal, would be spent on education. Here, even in the senior bracket, was where I found myself going over old ground and covering what I considered extremely basic information, be it mathematics, science, English or history. I was simply glad our peers were being taught something, and most days I was permitted to sit in on the classes, reading a book of my choosing. But by far the best times for me were those I spent in the company of Lucy and Abigail. It would be erroneous to call us inseparable, and more accurate to say that whenever the opportunity to draw together presented itself, we took it. We worked together, we learned together, we ate together, we talked together. Perhaps best of all, because it meant I did not have to judge how to behave and habitually wind up misreading things, we were able, as a trio, to comfortably enjoy a silence. One evening, we had stolen outside after guzzling our suppers quickly and snuck around to the back lawn. The grass was freshly mown, which is one of my very favourite smells, and the air was still deliciously warm. We lay on our backs in triangular form, heads together, and gazed up at the expanse of stars. The first few times we had done this, I had been extremely nervous, always ready to catch the sound of encroaching goblins on the breeze. None had appeared, and our walls were high and adorned with spikes, broken glass, and obtuse shards of jagged slate. Nothing had yet gotten through, and on the third stargaze I had allowed my anxiety to slip into the background, still remaining vigilant but granting myself the ability to enjoy the moment of closeness. We could die of old age in here, you know, Abigail muttered on this night. If the nation is unsafe for sixty years or more, that is a distinct possibility. Chorus, said Lucy quietly. We could have families in here too. Our grandchildren could step out into a world that's safe. I felt a tightening in my gut as she said this, because of the implications of the concept, both dreadful and hopeful at once. I tilted my head and studied Lucy in the moonlight. Her eyes were shining. She sighed, brushing her hair off her face, 
and that tightness increased. I had to calm myself down. What I mean is, there is far worse fates than being wrinkled old prunes together in here and just living this life until our hearts give out. I felt Abigail's hand rest on mine, and again that tightness twisted up like something inside me was going to burst. I like being with you. I had never felt this way before, and ran an analytical check to ascertain whether I was hungry or conversely overfed, whether I had caught enough sleep, perhaps I was ill, no. Those all felt more negative than what this was. It was clearly love. And as soon as I had accepted this, my mind raced to deduce what kind. Was it simple infatuation? Was it love for the sake of experiencing for the first time in my life the sensation of what I had only read about and never observed? Was this the exaltation of not just one girl, but two, whom I had placed upon pedestals bordering on the divine, because I was so unused to female attention? Was it in fact courtly love, born of a mixture of these, knowing deep down full well that this could never be anything real? And could it in fact be real, if it were merely two of us? And yet to remove one felt like it would break me, so I would volunteer myself for expulsion from this dynamic. Within seconds I had internally talked myself out of these feelings. But somehow, even when battered by logic, they did not go away. I love being with you too, Lucy said, taking Abigail's other hand. What was I to do? Ultimately I was to do what I so often did as a child. I remained silent and did not address the dilemma, trusting things to resolve themselves, perhaps with a decisive action from me, but only at the appropriate time. It was not inaction, it was delayed action. I waited, and throughout the following week I busied myself with extracurricular activities. There was no formal calisthenics program at Weirwood, so drawing from my school athletics experience, I started one. At seven every morning, the complement of staff and children lined up to run the perimeter at their own pace. I had explained not only the physical and health benefits of this practice, but its key application for survival. The fastest human sprinter could not outrun a goblin flat out in the open, but working on our endurance and breathing and ability to hold ourselves together at speed would potentially save more lives than ours alone. Abigail, Lucy and myself frequently began at the front and kept pace with one another. It was always Lucy who tired first, as she had breathing difficulties when stressed. Abigail and I stayed with her as she slowed to a walk, but each time she was determined to finish the course rather than break away. One morning, as we passed by Nathan's hut, Abigail stopped on the spot and the group ran past most of them not noticing or choosing not to acknowledge what she had seen. Adorning the wooden boards were strokes of black tar, still wet and sticky. I glanced across to the livestock pen and spotted Nathan walking over to us. He caught sight of what was written on the wall of his home a moment later. Plague nigger. His footsteps became slower and his expression more grim. His eyes widened and he took a deep breath. Lucy reached out to touch his hand, but he drew away, and without a word opened his front door and went inside. We knocked politely. Come on in. We did so, and stood nervously inside his small domicile. To one side was the cot he slept in. Upon the windowsill sat an earthenware pot, 
bearing a vibrant purple angelonia, a summer snapdragon flower. Nathan sat in his chair. It had clearly been taken from an abandoned mansion, as its fancy cushions had no place in such meagre lodgings. He chewed on a hunk of bread and avoided our eye. We'll help you paint over it. Very kind of you, but I don't need it. And I can't paint over it until it dries or the tar is going to mix with the paint. Got to leave it a while, get on with my day. By which time everyone will have seen it as they circle the walls. What's that? This is a message, a very public one. Sir, can I have your permission to root out the culprit? Do what you want to, James. Just don't think it's the first time something like this has happened to me. Nathan fixed us with a look that was at once weary and accepting. Compared with the shit I've been through? He scratched at the scar on his neck very deliberately. This is just why folks being stupid and scared. Do you not feel safe? Until just now, I felt the safest I've ever been in my life. Goblins out there, I'm in here. One of the blessed. And at least they go after everybody. I kind of respect that. But Missy, I will never feel truly safe. Lucy looked troubled at this. Nevertheless, I'm going to help you go about your day. James, could you tell Miss Holloway that's what I'm doing? We'll be back, I said, and exchanging worried glances with Lucy, Abigail and I marched from the hut across the lawn and into Weirwood Manor. The investigation did not take long. Nobody in that house would have been able to present me with a true challenge, except perhaps Catherine herself. Children were lined up and a show of hands was demanded. I didn't even need to look as I walked behind Catherine. My eyes were closed until I distinguished the twin aromas of copious amounts of our dry, hard soap blocks and the bitter tinge of tar underneath. I turned to Doris Cooper, who looked back in obstinate fashion as Catherine inspected her hands. Under the fingernails. And some of her clothes will be missing, perhaps conveyed to the laundry room already. They will have tar upon them, or at least the odour of it. Doris snatched her hands away and bolted for the front door. With a snarl, Abigail, who had said nothing since seeing the lettering, broke from the line and shot after her. They ran through the house. I heard all manner of shouting and cursing, and followed Catherine after them, but by the time we had gotten to the front door, they were already hot-footing it out the back. Doris, who was surprisingly nimble for her size, sprinted across the back lawn with Abigail thundering after her. This seemed absurd to me, as the natural place of safety for Doris would be right where I was standing, within the gravitational field of Catherine, and the order she commanded. The children and staff had moved out to the east side of the house to watch Abigail chase down Doris. Several of the older kids and teachers were hurrying forwards, shouting at them to prevent calamity. As they ran close to Nathan's hut, Abigail put on a burst of speed, pulling back her right arm. Doris turned and squeaked in fright as she was punched full in the face, sending her tumbling to the ground. Abigail halted, panting hard as she stood over her fallen quarry. Catherine yelled across the lawn. Get the hell into my office, Gray. Dr. Potts had appeared at the back door, and as the limp form of Doris was picked up and borne across to the house by Mr. Swift, I murmured to Catherine, I will need to question the Cooper girl. She may have had accomplices. I think you've done enough. She replied grimly. I could not read on her face whether she meant that was a good job done, or whether I had made things worse. Across the way, Lucy and Nathan had paused in the middle of their painting, 
and the whole school watched Abigail as she walked the long distance across the grass and inside. Passing me, she shot a look, which once again I could not determine the overriding emotion behind. It could have been fear or anger or resentment or even solidarity. I could not pass out the subtleties. I gave my testimonial on the tarred letters and was excused shortly after. You have been listening to episode 14 of Secret Rooms, the definitive edition. The Painted Wall, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. James Penrose, performed by Alex Shaw. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Lucy Weatherfield, performed by Theo Lee. Nathan, performed by Eric Jones. Catherine Holloway, performed by Maya Santandrea. Still, composed and performed by Ross Bugden. Fife and Drum, On the Cool Side, and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Many Soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Just before we go, it is worth pointing out that the first book in Phase 2 of New Century has just been released, Uncivil Outlaw. And this is the first one that I am doing without the audio adaptation coming first. So that's Uncivil Outlaw, now available on Amazon, via the Kindle store, or a beautiful paperback edition. And this one is a gripping, page-turning political thriller. But it's also filled with mayhem, action, and humor. So if you've read or listened up to Steamheart, this book is your next port of call. And if you've already read it, Uncivil Outlaw could do with a few reviews. 